have a, a study entitled The Beginning of the End. And with where we're at right now in world history and with what's going on in our world, I, I, I could see how fitting it is for us to study some end times prophecy, which Jesus talked about. And we're going to go over this in the Gospel of Luke. If you remember where we're at right now in, in our Bible study is we are witnessing the account of the last week of Jesus's life. Remember, he, he came in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And we learned about that. He had that triumphant entry into Jerusalem and everyone's worshiping and praising him. They're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus, as he's entering into Jerusalem, looking at these people who are worshiping him, notice, first of all, Jesus himself is receiving worship. Why does he get to receive worship? Because he's equal with God. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, his heart begins to mourn and break and weep. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, that I could gather you as the mother hen gathers her young close to me. Because he knew the hearts of the people, the hearts of men were so fickle that one week they'd be worshiping and praising Jesus. And seven days later, they'd be crucifying him. The multitudes of people would gather together and say, crucify him, crucify him. So how quick things changed with the hearts of the people. You know, I'll, I'll give you guys uh, kind of a, a heads up of what we're going to be as a church entering into uh, this coming weeks is pretty soon here, uh, we're going to be celebrating Resurrection Sunday. And it's coming up. And I think it's God's sovereign plan that we are studying the last week of Jesus' life as it leads up to Luke's gospel, chapter 24, when it talks about his resurrection. And I'm excited for that. I want to know what else I'm excited for too. My wife and I, just so you guys know, we're going to be going to Israel. So April 4th through the 14th, we're going to be gone. So one of the Sundays, one Sunday, I am going to have a guest teacher here that day. It's going to be Palm Sunday. And I'm excited for that guest teacher and for you guys who are going to be here. Uh, as you guys learn about Palm Sunday. And then when we come back, we're going to come back on Thursday, right before Good Friday. I want to have a a Good Friday service here that night. And then Sunday morning, I'm I'm super excited for it because I'm going to, me and my wife, we're going to get to see the land, see the place where Jesus walked, see where he was crucified. And then come back and then share the word with you guys on that. So be praying for this church as, you know, this season we want to get our hearts, our minds in focus and in tune with what God is doing. So I'm excited. So let's dive into this portion of scripture that we're going to be going over. We're going to be going over the first 19 verses of chapter 21. Let's read a few of them. Beginning in Luke's gospel, chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. It says, and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. 
But she, out of her poverty, put in all that the livelihood that she had. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what signs will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions... Do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience possess your souls. Amen. Now in this account, remember, Jesus, he was ministering to the disciples right before last week when we were studying. He was warning them to beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was questioning the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees on their ideas of the Messiah and their beliefs of the resurrection. And in the midst of this, remember, Jesus is at the temple. And as Jesus is at the temple, one thing I see and I notice is Jesus actually did a lot of work at the temple. You know, sometimes I, I find myself getting into this idea of like Jesus was just completely against the, the church organization or the temple organization. But at, at the same time, I see Jesus teaching in the temple a lot. And so I, I don't see Jesus as against the temple and against religion, but I see him as coming in to fix what was wrong with the religion. And one thing that he sees that is wrong is the way people have their hearts on their material wealth rather than on the Lord. So again, when we look at these first four verses that we covered, it says, And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all of these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty 
put in all the livelihood that she had. So Jesus is watching and you see this little old widow coming over and she just puts in two mites. Now those little mites, there were these small brass coins and it was literally one fifth of a cent. How much gas can you get on that? You need a lot of mites, right? Like a whole bag of them just to get a gallon maybe. Now, one thing I noticed right here, as Jesus notices this poor widow and what he says, truly I say to you, she's put in more than all of these. He's not condemning the rich right here. What he's doing is commending the heart of this poor widow's service. Which leads me to my first point this morning. And I love to give you guys points so that way you can kind of grasp what I, what I saw as the main message that I want to get across to you guys. And you could go home with them and, and then do your own study. But my, my first point, point number one, what does your service cost you? You see, you guys have a call in your life. God has placed anointings and spiritual gifts in the lives of his believers. And you have a service that is supposed to be unto the Lord. And I I want us to think about that this morning. What does our service cost you? Because our ministry should cost us. Because if ministry doesn't cost us anything, then it's not really service. How much of our heart is involved in the things that God has called us to? Or are we kind of getting in the, in the routine of things where week by week it's just now becoming second motion or second nature where it's like, okay, this is what I do out of obligation. See, I want Redeemed Church Fellowship. What I want for all of us here is that we would be the best loved and best cared for sheep. Because... When you guys hurt, I hurt. And I want that to be true even more so. When you guys are going through things, I want to be there with you, praying for you, loving on you. You know, and as a ministry here, I've told you guys this before. Look, true ministry, it means service. So ministry isn't, okay, you guys are supposed to bless me, the the minister no ministry is i'm supposed to serve you and i'm i'm serving the lord first i'm serving you guys next and it costs us now we have in this congregation here we have the widows who come here and and i see them going into the little agape box in the back and putting in their two mites and i i can tell you that you know they're they're not well off And I see the faithfulness of that. Now, in my flesh and in my heart, I might even say to a poor widow in our fellowship, hey, you know what? Don't give. Let others give. Like, you keep it. Keep that money. But I would be robbing them of a blessing. I would be robbing that person of the blessing because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So, I I say this just to recognize, look, where is our heart in our ministry? Where is our heart in our service? And it's not just finances. What about our time? What, What about the gifts that God has used in you, the skills? Are we using it for the Lord's glory? Let's do all things for the glory of God. And now in verse five, it says, then as some spoke of the temple, 
how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He said, these things which you see, the days will come in in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Interesting here. Point two of my study today. Jesus' words never fail. Now, when Jesus and his disciples, they're walking in, they're looking, man, this is a great and beautiful temple, Jesus, that look at all the way that they've made this for the Lord. It's so beautiful. And Jesus looks at them and says, look, this is all coming down. And they, the people at that time, in an error, they started to look at the temple as even more holy than God himself. They started to kind of idolize the temple. That's what some of the Pharisees were doing. And when you look at the history of the temple, which we're going to see, I'm excited for, uh, King Solomon, he was, you know, King David's son. King David wanted to build a temple for God, but God came to him and said, no, you're not going to build the temple for me. Your son is going to build the temple. So King Solomon, he was the first one to construct the temple. He built it in 957 BC. Now, I need you guys to write these down because I'm going to quiz you at the end of the study today. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But he built this temple in 957 BC. And then Israel was thriving in the promised land. But what happened, Israel began to allow idolatry in their lives. So because Israel allowed idolatry in their lives, the nation of Babylon came and took Israel captive. They took them away too. And why did this happen? Why was Babylon allowed to take Israel captive? It was for this reason. They didn't keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, what, what does that mean exactly? See, God said in his Ten Commandments that they were to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And that word Sabbath, it was a day of rest. Now, okay, Offer me to go on a little rabbit trail right here for a moment. We're, we're talking about how Jesus' words never fail. But, but I have a sub-point on the lesson of, of why Israel was taken out of their land, taken into captivity into Babylon. I want to exhort the church this morning, including myself, on one of the Ten Commandments, which is to keep the Sabbath day holy. And this hit me hard this week. You see... We are not made to work seven days a week as our bodies function, our minds work. We're commanded and we're given the freedom to rest. Rest our bodies, rest our mind, and we need that. You know, even in ministry, I have to, myself, I have to stop and allow myself rest. And and there's times when I just, I want to go gung-ho and we're moving and we're like, we keep going. Like, we never stop and I don't need it. Like, I'm, I'm young, unhealthy, like nobody can stop me. And the, there's times when the Lord just hits the pause button in my life. And he's like, slow down, bro. You need to rest in me. And we're called to do that. It's one of the commandments that we are to take a day to rest and to honor the Lord with that rest. It's to rest in Christ. Now, some people get hung up on which day of the week that you claim your Sabbath day and worship the Lord. So we don't need to get legalistic about it like those people. I want want to encourage us from a verse that Paul wrote 
to Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he said, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So, look, don't let people judge you, because there's the Seventh-day Adventist uh, group of people who will say, if you're not worshiping on Saturday, then you're not really saved. And they go to that extreme, which it, it, it saddens me that they would go to that extreme. Um, you can have church on Saturdays. That's beautiful. That's amazing. If that's your Sabbath day, cool. But Paul exhorted the Colossians to, look, some man seems esteems one day above another. And that's cool. We have the freedom to rest in Christ. But let's make sure, church, that we are taking that rest in our life. You see, we have to allow ourselves to say, you know what, Lord? I trust you. You do your best and then you commit the rest to God. Now, remember with the Israelites, one thing that they started to do is they started to not keep the Sabbath day holy. They were working on the Sabbath day. They were working a lot. And then God had commanded them that every seven years, they were supposed to stop working the land and the agriculture. That every seven years, they were going to give the land rest and it was going to be a Sabbath's rest for the land. But Israel, at a certain point, they stopped doing this. So they kept working on that seventh year. And they kept working the land. And they did this for 490 years. They weren't honoring the Sabbath rest. And because they did it for 490 years, when their time was up and God was going to chasten them, he said, all right, I want my 70 Sabbaths back. So for 70 years, he had them exiled into Babylon where they were under captivity. So I see, look, there is a really strong ex exhortation for us. Look, we got to take that Sabbath rest. We got to keep that Sabbath day holy. And I want to exhort you guys this morning. We got to keep church such an essential part of our life. The gathering together of the brethren. The Bible teaches us not to forsake it. I know with covid People went onto the online thing and it was for medical safety issues, but God has called us to come and gather together with our brethren. So let's continue in that. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here because you guys are here, but it's just encouragement for us this morning. Now, kind of going back onto the, the history of the temple, as Jesus is looking at it. So after King Solomon constructed the temple, 370 years later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he had already begun to conquer Israel. And finally, after he had already conquered Israel, he destroyed the temple in 587 BC. So that's 370 years later. The temple is destroyed. And once the temple was destroyed, 49 years later, towards the end of that 70 years that they were exiled, as God had prophesied King Cyrus in 538 BC decreed that the Jews can return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that was in 20 BC. So then the Jews are, are excited. They're happy. I remember the prophet Jeremiah 
is being told and taught, look, Jeremiah prophesied 70 years, we're going to go back. And now they're all going back. They're leaving Babylon. They're excited. They're like, the God has kept his word. We're going back. And they began to rebuild the temple. For extra credit, go read the book of Nehemiah. It's a great lesson in building projects. Building projects founded on God. In 70 AD, oh, I'm sorry. After they rebuilt the temple, 538 BC, then 518 years later, there was a little man named King Herod. The great, actually, he was Herod the Great who had little man syndrome. And because he had little man syndrome, because he was a little man, everything he made had to be super big. He was compensating because he was such a little man. And he wanted to, he saw the temple, it was rebuilt. He's like, you know what? I can make it better. So he began this whole remodeling project. And he was like, okay, tile, gold, silver. We're going to make, just make it big. And he's rebuilding the whole thing around 20 BC, which was basically the last time it was rebuilt. And it was rebuilt beautifully by him. Until in 70 AD, the Romans were squashing the last rebellions of the Jews and they burned down the temple. And when they burnt the temple on the last time in 70 AD, the, the gold that was in the temple, the gold melted into the cracks of all the stones that were the temple was built of. So Titus, he said, hey, we want the gold. He ordered that every stone would be taken part by part. Stone by stone was taken apart apart one another so that they could get the gold out of the stones. And just like Jesus said, Jesus is there, he's with his disciples. They're like, wow, this temple is so beautiful. He says, not one stone is gonna remain upon another. And just like Jesus said, Titus ordered that every stone was taken undone and the gold taken off of it. What I see here is that Jesus in his divinity, he knows all things. And when he says a thing is going to be, it's going to be. So has Jesus given you guys a word? Has Jesus given you guys promises that you could hold on to? Then you can trust that he is faithful to complete that promise. We don't have to worry, oh God, like what are you going to do about the church? What are you going to do about my family? What are you going to do about my kids when he's given us those promises? Look, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his word. So look, God's given us words. Let's, hold, let's stand on them. In verse seven, it says, so they asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So remember Jesus is telling his disciples, look, the temple of the Lord that you guys see here, it's going to fall. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come stone by stone apart. And the disciples are like, when? When is this going to happen, Jesus? And then in verse 8, he says, and he said, take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. Now, this leads me to my third point this morning. Point three, beware false prophets. 
Now, this is the warning that Jesus is giving them here. He's saying, look, many are going to come in Jesus' name, and they will say that they are Jesus. They will say that they are God and that the time is near. And there's historical records of a few hundred years after even Jesus' being here on the earth that other guys were coming up and saying that they were Jesus incarnate. But there's going to be false prophets who are going to arise. And what we're focusing on right now is the signs of the end time. So when we start to see these things that Jesus is talking about, we know that his return is near. He's warning us to beware of these false prophets. I don't know if you guys saw recently, uh, this past Saturday, actually yesterday, 2020, they did a whole special, an hour special, it was called The Cult Next Door, and it was on Heaven's Gate Cult. I don't know if you guys ever heard about Heaven's Gate Cult. So Heaven's Gate Cult was this guy who convinced all these people that a comet was going to come flying by the earth, and that when that comet flew by the earth, it was going to be Jesus in that comet in his spaceship. And they all wore these weird uh, Jordan or, or Nike shoes as like unity, and tragically, because of the deception, when that comet was going to pass by, he convinced all of them, in order to get on this comet, we're going to drink this poison. It's going to like make us real loopy. It's going to kill us, basically. And they're gonna, we're going to wrap plastic surround wrap around our heads and lie in bed all together and die. And all these people did this. There was a group of them who did it. False prophet. Another one that's a famous one is Jim Jones and the, the things that he was doing in uh, South America. And you could go look at the, the documentaries on, on him and how these people, they twist the truth. They twist the historical record of what Jesus said he was, of the things that Jesus did. And we need to be careful when we see somebody coming and proclaiming things in Jesus' name. Paul warned Timothy and Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So even Paul was warning Timothy, look, the, the, by the Holy Spirit, he's saying in latter times, there's going to be these people who hear the doctrine of demons and that their conscience was seared with a hot iron. And have you ever left a hot iron on your shirt in the morning? And all of a sudden you get back to it and you take it off and you're like, oh man, there's a big black spot or it's just like really crunchy right there. That's what he's saying their, their heart, their conscience was seared with a hot iron, like the nerve endings of their heart have been seared. So they don't have that conviction anymore. And I realize, look, some cult leaders are themselves deceived, whereas other cult leaders straight up know that they're lying. And they know that what they believe isn't true. For example, the Church of Scientology. Have you guys ever heard of that church? Watch any Tom Cruise movies? So Al Ron Hubbard is the leader of was the founder of the Church of Scientology. And this guy reportedly said in 1948, he said, look, you don't get rich writing science fiction because he was a science fiction writer. 
by the way. The guy who created Scientology wrote all these sci-fi books, non or science fiction. And he said this, he said, if you don't get rich writing science fiction, if you want to get rich, you start a religion. And, and then people went and joined his cult. It's like, what, aren't you guys listening? I think Leah Rimney or whatever her, her last name is, Leah, she went out after she came out of that cult and just slammed them. And then they actually tried to attack her and all this craziness, scandals going on. So we need to be aware that there are false prophets rising in our day, in our age, and they have followings who are following after them. So this is why it's so important that we know this, our word, that we read it, that we go through it, that we study it for ourselves. Because there's going to be people coming knocking at your door. Have you heard? Have you heard of that, that Jesus, he came in 19... 19- 16 he came in 1948 oh, weird things okay and just like what that just, I don't see that in the word we need to know our word and these people in the cults they know their doctrine better than we most of us Christians now continuing in, in verse 9 he says but when you hear of wars and commotions do not be terrified for these things must come to pass first but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So wars and commotions. In, in Matthew's gospel, it, it says wars and rumors of wars. And I, I like how he says right there, don't be terrified. So yes, do we see what is happening in, across the world? Absolutely the exhortation here is, look, we don't need to be terrified. Now, this leads me to my fourth point this morning. Point number four. We are seeing the beginning of the end. Okay, we are seeing the beginning of the end today. Look at Ukraine. Look at what's happening in Russia. And as I'm seeing this war taking place, I'm wondering how long is it going to be before Ezekiel chapter 38 comes to life and Russia, as prophesied, goes against Israel. Because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament. Read the, the book of Ezekiel. It talks about Rosh, which is Russia, going against Israel. And I see now Russia is making these moves and it's like, man, how long before Russia goes after Israel? And I'm hoping that it's after April 14th, when my wife and I come back from Israel. But I realized, look, we are seeing the beginning of the end. And then in verse 11, he says, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So, What's interesting now, he, he's saying, look, when you start to see these earthquakes taking place more frequently, I, I looked it up on, I wanted to see, okay, what about earthquakes in our day and age? Are, are, are they staying the same? Are they more frequent? Well, if you look up the U.S. Geological Survey, I found an article that says earthquakes are becoming more fre- frequent. Indeed, a recent study by the U.S. Geological Survey found that there were more than twice as many large earthquakes 
in the first quarter of 2014 than there were back in 1979. And the planet saw a record number of earthquakes last April with 13 quakes of magnitude 6.5 and above. So are earthquakes multiplying in various places? Absolutely. And he says, and the famines. You know what's interesting is the last time I, I studied this kind of topic of scripture, when I looked up famines, I didn't see so much that famine was a huge problem. But because of COVID, right now when you research what's going on with famines, today 45 million people are on the brink of famine across 43 countries. And because this COVID has pushed them over the edge, according to the World Food Program, they warn on November 8th that this number has risen from 42 million in the year prior, in 2019, to now 20, and it's risen 27 more million. And it's like, wow, pestilences, do we have that in our earth today? I don't know, have you guys heard about COVID? Yeah, pestilences have multiplied and it's shocked the, the world like we've never seen it. Now, what also at the end of verse 11, he says, and there will be fearful sights and great signs in heaven. Now that, I haven't, I can't really say I, I've seen that yet. I'm like, what's that gonna look like? Are people gonna start thinking that there's aliens that are coming, like demons in disguise? I don't know. But we are approaching the beginning of the end. In verse 12, he says, but before all these things, they will lay their, their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, you're gonna find that prophecies have a dual fulfillment. You see, as Jesus was saying to the, his disciples that they were gonna be brought up to the synagogues and prisons, that literally happened to them. But there is also going to be persecution on the Christians, a great persecution before the end, before the rapture, before the great tribulation. And when I look at the apostles of Jesus, those who followed him, about what they went through, man, they were persecuted. We know there was 12 apostles, Paul replaced Judas. But when you study the, their end, it is kind of heart-wrenching. You see, they follow the example that Jesus set before them. Look at Peter and Paul, right? Two great apostles. They were both martyred in Rome in 66 AD. Remember Peter, when he was crucified, he said, I am not worthy to die like Jesus so crucify me upside down. And they did crucify him upside down. And then Paul was beheaded on a Roman road by Caesar Nero. They chopped his head off for preaching the gospel. Remember James in Acts chapter 12, it talks about how King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. And he had the apostle James, who was John's brother, killed with a sword. And I'm like, man, Imagine, you, you have James and John were brothers, apostles, following Jesus. And they, they were so tight-knit. And, and I kind of like James and John because 
Jesus saw the, the zeal that they had and he said, man, I'm gonna call you guys sons of thunder. Right, that sounds like some sort of like motorcycle gang or something. But he's like, you guys are sons of thunder and they would go to these places and they'd be preaching the gospel and the people, they wouldn't receive the gospel. So they would ask Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? And Jesus would be like, oh, sons of thunder. Like, calm down. James, when he had his head chopped off by King Herod, I can't imagine the heartache that his brother John, who wrote the book of Revelation, the heartache that he was going through and who he himself was also being persecuted. Andrew was said to have been crucified in Greece. The apostle Thomas in India, it's believed that he died there when he was pierced through with spears by four different soldiers. The apostle Philip in Asia Minor, he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul so in retaliation, that Roman proconsul had Philip arrested and put to death. Matthew, the, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, oldest reports say that he was not martyred, where some people actually say that he actually was martyred, that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. We're not sure. Bartholomew, there's various accounts of how he met his death as a martyr for the Gospel. The Apostle James. Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. We know there was Simon the Zealot, that he was ministering in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. And then lastly, we have John, the Apostle, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. Now, John it seems to be the only one who died of natural causes. But before he died, because he was preaching the gospel, they tried to kill him. They put him in, in a vat of boiling oil, and they wanted him to die. They thought it was going to kill him, but it didn't kill him. So because it didn't kill him, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And it was on the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. But he was still persecuted greatly. Now, what's awesome to me is that when I think of like, man, all the trials these guys went through, the suffering. What's awesome to me is that Jesus, he himself endured suffering. But when Jesus endured suffering for a moment, he was forsaken by his father. He said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the reason why he did that was in order so that we would never have to be forsaken. So that when these apostles were going through persecution, when these apostles were giving their lives, putting their lives on the line for the gospel, God was with them, empowering them, giving them that grace that only a martyr can face. So this leads me to my fifth point this morning. My fifth point is God is with us in our trial. He never leaves us and he never forsakes us. Point four, you're asking? Point four was we're seeing the beginning of the end. It's okay. <laughs> I'm glad I could say that to you. Our fifth point, God is with us in our trial. Now, the men that I listed here, the apostles, they followed the example 
that Jesus gave them. You see, this wasn't some self-inflicted harm that they put on themselves. And they weren't following a path for success, worldly success. They weren't thinking, okay, if we follow Jesus, then we're going to get riches and and success and and the accolades of men and we're going to grow in our pride. No, the disciples, they forsook their livelihood and followed after Jesus. Because he was Jesus. He was the God-man. That's why they followed after him. What causes us to lay aside the things that we, the plans that we have in life so that we can go follow a man? It's if that man is Jesus. So they simply obeyed the Lord even when it cost their lives. And I think, where is God when these men were being tortured? Because that's, you know, a thought we have sometimes when we're going through trials. And God was in the same place, and he is in the same place where he was when his son was dying on the cross. See, God has the ability to be with us in our worst trials. Have you guys had a cry out to Jesus lately in a trial, in a moment? You see, sometimes even words are not enough in that moment. When you're in the, the darkest of nights, when you're in the worst trial or, or just the feelings of anxiety and loneliness and persecution, what if you lost your sight? What if, what if you couldn't see anymore? What if you couldn't read? What if you lost your hearing and you couldn't hear anymore? You know, I want to encourage us, Jesus, he would still be available to you. I want to encourage you guys to when you guys are going through those situations where you feel overwhelmed or, or, or pressed and oppressed, to invite Jesus just to be with you in that moment. Just to take that simple step in the relationship with Jesus and saying, Jesus, I just need you. You know, sometimes our prayers don't need to be these long, lengthy prayers of, uh, of just reciting a scripture word by word. You know, sometimes our prayers can be those simple, Jesus, just be with me. I'm reminded of Peter when he was falling into the water. He was looking at the, at the water and the waves when he was first walking on water, and then he get, got his eyes on the waves, and he starts to sink. And he simply says, Lord, save me. Simple, quick prayer. You know, we can pray those words. You know, I want to encourage us to read and pray always. But even more so, invite Jesus into those moments. Invite Jesus into the moments of your prayer and reading time. Because we could just read this like literature and try to learn more uh, about the King James English language. But if you invite Jesus, Jesus, be with me in this moment. Speak to me. Lead me. Guide me. We can be aware that Jesus is with us. In verse 13, Jesus said, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Now this word for testimony, what it means, it's going to be a witness. It's going to be a proclamation. And what's interesting is the word for testimony, the Greek word for it is martyrus. When you study it, it's the same word that we get for martyr. 
So the persecution would be an occasion for proclaiming the salvation of Jesus. And I recognize that even what the enemy means for evil, that God turns it for good in our life. It's like Satan, like he, he thinks he's got us, right? He's like gonna throw a punch at, at us, but then Jesus just like moves us out of the way and he just punches himself. It's like what the enemy is trying to do, it just backfires on him. You know, this past Wednesday night, we, we heard a study from Mikey Sanchez and he was saying, I, I wonder that moment when Satan, as he was watching Jesus just being beaten and crucified and, and whipped, I wonder where was that moment where Satan was like, yeah, yeah, get him, get him. And all of a sudden it just clicked and Satan realized like, wait a second, like this is the Messiah put to death, resurrected. My whole plan is backfiring on me where instead of really destroying the hope of the believer, he is now making the, his, their hope secure in salvation. What was that point where Satan was like, oh my gosh, like, my use of Judas is just completely backfiring on me where Satan realized I am a defeated foe. Man, I I just wish I could see his face. And one day we will. The Bible says that one day that we're gonna look down upon Satan and be like, this was the guy who made such a havoc here on earth. This little puny thing. You see, God is not in a wrestling match with Satan, like with arm wrestling, like, oh, I'm struggling. No, God is, Satan was created by God as an angel initially in heaven. And so one day God is gonna deal with evil and he's gonna deal with Satan. Which leads me to Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. I have this verse up for you guys. John says, he's writing the book of Revelation, he says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. You see, there's going to be these martyrs who are joined in heaven with Christ. And they overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So our testimonies that we have, they are important. And they're beautiful things. We all have one. In verse 14, Jesus says, Therefore, settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Now, see, Jesus is encouraging his disciples here. He's saying, look, In those moments, I'm gonna give you a word of knowledge. I'm gonna give you the word of wisdom. These are spiritual gifts. And I'm reminded of Stephen, one of the early church founders, who at first, he was just a simple guy, just ministering to these poor widows in the church of Ephesus. But he was full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. 
So much so that as he preached the gospel, the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders, they hated his words. And they started to spread lies and say, this guy is blaspheming against Moses and against the temple. So they took Stephen before the council. And Stephen began to exhort and rebuke them. And he gave them this amazing message about how the forefathers, who they looked up to so much, continuously killed the prophets, killed the men who were anointed by God because they got it wrong. They thought the men of God were off. And they would kill the prophets, and he would tell them, look, you guys are uncircumcised in your heart, and you're stiff-necked. And this cut to their hearts so much so that they were gnashing their teeth and, and they took Stephen and they took him outside and they stoned him to death. And as Stephen was being the first martyr of the church, he says he looked up in the sky and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, accepting the first martyr into heaven. And you see, God gave Stephen the words to cut these guys to the heart and I, I'm reminded too, look, there is an anointing that you guys can have in those moments when all of a sudden someone comes across your way and they're telling you of a problem in their life or of a situation. And God just gives you these words sometimes where you just begin to speak to them and it's out of divine revelation. And those words just impact that person like no other. And it's not you, it's not me, it, it's God. In verse 16, it says, you will be betrayed even by parents, by brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. See, look, even the family, he's, Jesus is warning them, the own family members will betray them, and that other people, they're going to want to put them to death. They'll be hated. And I wonder, look, if we feel like man, everybody just loves me, everybody loves me. I'm wondering if that's how you feel, how much of Jesus are you really modeling? Because if you really model Jesus all, for the majority of the time, there's gonna be people who can't stand you because some people hate Jesus. They hate his name. It's weird, you could, talk, you could say God and you could talk about Buddha and Muhammad, but as soon as you bring up the name of Jesus, all of a sudden people are like, I don't wanna talk about that. They could talk, people at work, they could talk about all the terrible things of life and be like, oh yeah, this is bad and that's bad. And like, oh yeah, let's talk about it in detail. But as soon as you bring up the name Jesus, oh, please, dude, I don't want to hear it. It's like, oh, but you could talk about all the other worst things, right? Now in verse 18 and 19, the last two verses, he says, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. So see, now Jesus is giving them, look, we need to look into eternity. We need to have that eternal perspective that heaven does await us. That we have one life, it'll soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And that you guys, a man, a woman, is no fool who gives up what you cannot keep, the things of this world, so that you can gain that which cannot be taken from you. And as we saw in our study this morning, look, what does our service cost us? Does it cost us anything? We could be reminded that Jesus' words never fail. 
I'm going to exhort us this morning to beware of the false prophets that are out there. That what we are seeing today is the beginning of the end. But we can rest assured that God is with us in our trial. That he is preparing a place for us, even today. Let's pray.